Let's pray once more. Indeed, our God and our Father, we desire, we hope, we pray that you would bring us to the heart of worship. We pray that you would shape us and make our worship to be truly acceptable in your sight. We pray that our worship would align with your will. So I pray now that you would cause your word, your word, our risen King Jesus, to come alive to us, cause it to come off the page and come into our hearts by your Spirit and dwell richly within us. Grant us to be under your word, not proudly looking down at it and telling it what it says, but grant us to be humble like children underneath your word, letting your word tell us something. So give us hearts to hear. Lord Jesus, you, you are alive. You are there. You are in heaven on your throne right now. So we desire your pleasure from our worship. We desire you to take pleasure from what happens here. So have your way with us, please. Do whatever you desire, please, now. So come work in my words, constrain my words, carry them along, and carry along our ears. Do a good work now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this season of searching for a worship director, the elders and I thought it would be a good time to consider the topic of our corporate worship together. Now, I, I want to make one, or my, my fundamental presupposition clear right at the outset, and I can get at it with a question. Have you ever wondered, um, why did the first Christians, of, of all the things that Christians debated, all the things that Christians had councils about, all the things that, you know, like baptism and, and uh, communion, all, all kinds of things that Christians have debated about over the centuries, um, why was it that Christians felt free to make this monumental change right at the beginning of changing the literal day of worship from the Jewish day of the Sabbath, Saturday, to Sunday? With, with no counsel, no, no discussion, they just did it. <laughs> Why? 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 Why do we call this day the Lord's day? Say it. <laughs> It's the day Jesus was risen from the dead. Okay? So our, our starting point, when we talk about worship, this is, we call this the Lord's day. Because this is the day Jesus was risen from the dead. We serve a risen Savior. We, we, we don't start with a theology. We start with a historical fact and a person, Jesus, risen from the dead. Um. The resurrection of Jesus and the ascension means that our God lives. He lives and he is our life, therefore he deserves all of our worship. All of it. And so, <laughs> you're going to say, this is what we pay you for, Jed? Well, I'm about to say next. Yeah, it's, it's so obvious, it, it, it's so obvious that it's, it's totally overlooked all the time. We worship God. 
<laughs> but we need to hear that. We, we come here to worship God, who is alive, who is risen, who is there, who is there. He is the object of all of our worship, and, and therefore, he sets the terms of the worship that he finds acceptable, and he does so, of course, in his word. Now, there's a funny thing, though. When we look in the Bible, we realize that God is very specific about certain aspects of worship, um, but then he is fascinatingly silent about a lot of other aspects of worship. It's really interesting. But the more we think about it, it's, it's actually very... Uh, it's cool. <laughs> it's, it's cool of God to, to do it this way. Here, so here's my fundamental presupposition, threefold. Number one, we worship God. Number two, he wants us, on the one hand, informed by his word at every turn. He wants, us, he wants our knee-jerk reaction to be, what does the word say about everything, about everything? Having said that, at the same time, he leaves us with plenty of room, number three, to exercise our own reason as we construct our worship service together every Sunday. So it's both. Is it, are, we, are we Bible people or are we people that use our noggins? And the answer is, well, yes, of course, both. Um, both. So with, with that presupposition, I want to consider two crucial passages about the church's worship in the New Testament, and, and they reveal two of God's priorities for worship, unity and warfare. Unity and warfare. And I bring these up because these are perspectives that the American church, uh, th thankfully our church does consider, but the, in, in general, these have not been perspectives that we have considered a lot in the past. So, And then having considered these, we will we will reason together. We will apply these principles to ourselves. So we begin with Romans 15. Romans 15, and the first point here is that God desires for us to be united in relationship in order to be united in worship. United in relationship to be united in worship. I'm convinced that Romans 15 verses 5 through 7, or 5 and 6 and 7, is ground zero for understanding the, the worship that God wants from his people. And, and again, it is, it is very foreign in some ways to, to the American church. Um, that's why I bring it up. This is the fifth and final section of Romans where Paul is working out the practical implications of the gospel. He's been warning us to avoid controversies within the church about debatable things, things which people of differing maturities will, will disagree about. And he says to do the opposite of debate, welcome and bear with the other person who is weaker in their faith on debatable things. After all, verse 3, we are only here and the, the church only exists. You only have salvation because Christ himself did the same thing. He did not please himself, but allowed the reproaches that should have fallen on us to fall on him. So the church was given birth by, by Christ bearing with us the weak. <laughs> Remember, you were always, and I was always first, the weaker brother <laughs> in relationship to Christ. Furthermore, what was written down in the old days, verse 4, was not written down for the sake of bickering and division, but to give each other hope. 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 If, you're, if we're not giving people hope, he's basically saying, no matter what else you're doing right in church, you're not doing it right. The, the goal needs to be hope. 
So then, in verses 5 and 6, Paul gives what scholars call a wish prayer. A wish prayer, an example of, but by the way, uh, when you see Paul do this, it's a good example of how, what Paul means by praying constantly, praying without ceasing. And you see Paul write and he says, may, blah, 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 that's, that's him just praying, may God do this. As I'm thinking about this, it turns me to prayer and then I go back to it. That's what he does here. He pops off a prayer here that goes to the very heart of God about what this 90-minute time slot in our week is all about, what's underneath it. He prays that the God who gives us hope by giving us encouragement and endurance, that he would give us harmony, unity, in the other 166 and a half hours of the week. This harmony comes by living in accord with Christ Jesus with Christ Jesus. Usually when Paul puts the word Christ, which means Messiah, the promised one, when he puts that before the name of Jesus, he's reminding us again of the gospel, what Jesus did for us. He's reminding us of verse 3, where he refers to Jesus as the Christ. So when, when we live, what this means is when we live in accord with Christ Jesus, that means we will be like a guitar that resonates when you pluck another guitar like a foot away. We'll, we'll be like him and we will all be in unity around him. He'll be at the center, and we're all in unity around him, worshiping him, trying to come into a greater and greater uh, uh, likeness of appearance to Jesus. And as we do that, we will gladly bear with the failings of others, not living to please ourselves, because we'll be coming more and more into the likeness of Jesus, and this will produce a harmony among us, a harmony outside of this room. Now, as I've said before, the, the reason for this, the reason why God wants this harmony is not because he's overly impressed with our piety. God, do, God doesn't need you, you know, your holiness. He's good in himself. He's fine. But, uh, but, that, but that's the point, is that God is our everything. God is everything. God is the one who, who deserves our worship. God is the one who provides what we need to worship. As, as Paul said earlier in Romans 11, verse 36, for, for um, from him and through him and to him, i.e. Jesus, are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The point is God. <laughs> what is God? The point is the worship of about him. Everything exists because of him. Th think about this statement. Everything holds together because he wills it so. Everything exists for him. Therefore, all glory deservedly goes to him. He deserves harmonious glory. So that means that when, when God commands our unity, God commands our harmony with one another. It's not that he needs harmony. It, it's that, that this harmony is meant to contribute to something else. It, it's not meant to make Grace Church work better or to be more attractive to outsiders or to have less conflict or to have more pious, less sinful people. God's goal in commanding this unity, the harmony, his, his result that he's looking for is in verse 6, when we come together for this 90 minutes, that together may, we may, as with one voice, glorify him. This unity that we're to have, this harmony, it, its goal is so that we would make one harmonious voice when we come together and glorify him. So let's, let's put this in the negative, this principle. If we are not united together in ordinary life, 
When we come together on the Lord's Day, we, we can have the most excellent music that harmonizes together audibly, but all God will hear is pots and pans clanging together. Um, he's our Father. And fathers see the pretenses that the children put up, you know? The one child punches the other, you know, and then smiles at daddy, you know? <laughs> you know? As if daddy didn't see you. I, I just saw you punch the other kid. Like, what, what's the smile about? God, see, God sees our pretenses. He sees all of them. He sees our bitterness and our envy and our self-pleasing that we hold in our hearts. He sees the, the personal wreckage behind the scenes on Tuesday that, that's left when we seek our own way and leave others in the dust. He sees all that. <laughs> you know, he knows we're hiding off in the bushes. He knew Adam and Eve were there. He sees all of it. But to put it in the positive, when we live in harmony with one another, when we are all growing in accord with Christ in harmony around him, God hears, when we come together, God hears a glorious sound. Even when the soundboard isn't working or the syncopation is not quite right. Oh, it's glorious to him. That in no way means that we don't pursue excellence, but this is not an either or. Paul is saying, in order to truly understand worship, we must stop and look at it from the Lord's perspective. On the Lord's day, Lord's day worship is a product of every other day worship, of living in accord with Christ Jesus, of not grieving the Spirit. And the quickest way to grieve the Spirit is not to commit that one big ticket item sin that you're thinking about right now. The quickest way to grieve the Holy Spirit is to leave personal wreckage in the relationships here in this church. But when, when those relationships are harmonious, then this will produce real harmony on the Lord's day that, that our worship then is only an expressive expression of and that God will find pleasurable, pleasurable. God detests our pretensions, but he delights when we raise our hands together in authentic, Christ-aligning harmony and unity. So th th this is the first, this is the first um, perspective, that we must unite together in relationship around Christ, that we might be united together in worship. Then the second is this, the second perspective, that when we unite together in worship, we do so so that we might call down the heavens so that things might be changed. The second point is that we are to be united in worship to call down the heavens. I get this from Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29. Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29. The hearers of this letter are going through great suffering. Great suffering. And... Perhaps you've been here before, I have. Sometimes in protracted suffering, we are tempted to go back to old ways, to, to living by our own power, to living by our own works. That's a, it's a very human temptation. So the author here encourages them to keep going. And one big point that he keeps making is that their sufferings, as we will see, are a feature, not a bug. God hasn't fallen down on the job. So in the first paragraph here in verses 18 through 24, he compares two mountains, two mountains. And he says, verse 18, you've not come to Mount Sinai where the, the law was given to Moses, by Moses, where everything about it, everything about that moment said, stand back 
You are not worthy. There's the fire and the clouds and stand back. Do not touch the mountain lest you die. Stand back. You are not worthy. This all made Moses, verse 21, tremble with fear. No, the writer said, you've come to Mount Zion, verse 22. Mount Zion, the home of the living God, the resurrected God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So you got to use your imaginations on this one. What he's saying, what he's saying is that there's already this gathering, this gathering of spirits, of souls on Mount Zion. And what he's saying is that if you are in Christ, spiritually speaking, you have already come there. You are already there. You're already there. Where? We are already there with innumerable angels who are in a party kind of mood. In festal, it's a festal gathering. Festal meaning the, like the, the anticipation you feel when you're, when you're going to a festival that you know that's going to be awesome. And more than that, verse 23, he says, we are already enrolled in the number of the firstborn. Firstborn. This will become clear as to why he uses this word firstborn in a second, but... We've already come to God who is the judge and he has judged us miracle of miracles as perfect. (laughs) Can you believe that? It's one of those times in scripture where if you're reading it, you ought to go, wow, yeah. Because do I deserve that? No. No, but he no longer, he, he no longer says to you, unworthy. But he says, you are so worthy. Come, my child, come. Not because of us, verse 24, but because of the righteousness of Christ that we are robed in. His righteousness is our festal, festal clothing. We are one of those spirits made perfect, verse 23. We are right there, spiritually speaking, celebrating with him on Mount Zion. Right now. This is very similar to Ephesians 2.6, where Paul says that we are already raised with Christ and already seated with him in the heavenly places. All because, Hebrews 12, verse 24, we've come to Jesus. We've come to Jesus who created a new and better covenant with his own blood shed for us. It says there, his blood speaks a better word than the, than the blood of Abel. Abel, who of course in Genesis was killed by his firstborn brother, Cain. And Abel's blood cries out for vengeance. So Jesus came as a new firstborn, and his blood answered, saying, vengeance will be mine. And he meted out that vengeance on himself, on himself, so that we all might, by his grace, all of us who have become Cain's, all of us who have become wrong firstborns may in him by his sacrifice he took our place so that we might stand in the place of Christ as the pure, welcomed, worthy firstborn before God. It's, it's too good to be true. And yet it's there. <laughs> Grace for Cain's, like you and me. So, so <laughs> all of that is worth worship. Okay, <laughs> we could stop right there and go, praise God, let's worship. But then the author goes on in verses 25 to 29. To the Hebrews, he says, verse 25, 
Therefore, there, there's salvation nowhere else, nowhere else to go. So, so don't go back. Don't refuse him. Keep going. Keep going with Christ because, verse 26, he is shaking the heavens and the earth. He is shaking the heavens and the earth. So, uh, so let me stop here. So, so what's happening here is that when we come together and we worship, when we worship, we are joining that heavenly chorus on Sunday that's already happening. That chorus is always going on on Mount Zion all the time. And when we gather on Sundays, we are joining that chorus and seeking to align ourselves with that heavenly chorus that's already going on. We are joining the spirits and their festal gathering, celebrating the glorious grace of God, which is great. Let's do that. And there's something here, there's some connection about what we do here and the earth shaking, the heavens and the earth shaking. Now, we live, I'm convinced, um, in the season of this shaking, the season of history of the shaking. And the purpose of the shaking, the writer says, is in verse 27. Verse 27, to remove the things that shake. To remove the things that shake. That those things that are founded upon Christ might alone remain. So the shaking, the earth shaking under your feet, the sufferings that you're going through, that's a feature, not a bug. God is doing the shaking. Why? To remove the things that need to go back into the grave and only leave that which is of Christ, that which is of his new resurrection life. So, what do you do when you feel everything around you shaking? All the institutions, all the, all the morals in the, in the culture, what, what, what do you do? And, and by the way, in just a second, I'm, I want to draw out the connection between the worship and the shaking. But in verse 28, we start to see here what is acceptable worship. Number, verse 28, we have gratitude. We have gratitude that as everything crumbles, we are not that we have a kingdom that will remain. So we should come, and acceptable worship is worshiping with gratitude, gratitude that we've been given by God's grace and that, and that we don't need to go back. Yes, there's that temptation, but that, but that going back is only going to lead us to a place that will be shaken and removed. But we have a kingdom that will not be shaken or removed. And, and we should offer acceptable worship. Acceptable worship. So what is acceptable worship? Number one, it is a grateful celebration. Number two, the writer says, it is reverence and awe. Reverence and awe. Not a craven reverence. Forgive me if I've shared this story before, but I remember once on an Air Force uh, game Saturday in Colorado Springs driving down Powers Boulevard and they were playing Navy or you know some, some t- other academy. And so there were lots of planes in the air for the flyover. And just as I was driving down Powers Boulevard, the cars behind me all started to slow down. And then coming right down Powers was a stealth bomber. Just, <laughs> What I felt in that moment was reverence and awe. <laughs> you know? Why? Because, uh, at least at that time, I thought, those guns will never be pointed at me. They will only be aimed for me. That exists. That, that awesome power, 
that could literally wipe me and this whole city off the map right now is for me. That, that kind of celebra- celebration paired with reverence and awe. Um, so, a grateful celebration paired with reverence and awe of what God has done, paired with, paired with s- some feeling about what, what's going on with this shaking. What, why the shaking? And I, I put it this way, number three, an anticipation of conquest. An anticipation of conquest. Now, where does this third point come from? Uh, it comes from the book of Revelation, which in my view, my reading of the book of Revelation, is like one big commentary on this shaking of all things that God is doing here. Um, in Revelation, after the first couple of chapters, you see this very distinct pattern. First, we see worship on Mount Zion. I can't, I can't go into all of it, but you see, we see the festal gathering that Paul speaks of here in Hebrews 12. The elders falling down in worship, the four living creatures crying, holy, 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 the purified church, a myriad of, of peoples and nations, of all tongues and tribes, um, worshiping the lamb who was slain. You, you see this, and you see it here, you see it here, you see it here, but then each, each vision of worship in the heavenly places is always paired with and followed by judgments that fall on the earth. After the worship comes the horses of God's judgment riding, the cups of God's wrath being poured out, and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, the bride adorned for her husband. So what is happening here? What's the relationship between the two? It is the prayers and acceptable worship of the saints that in the heavenly places that we join with on Sunday mornings, on the Lord's Day. We join with, that, with those prayers and those worships, and it is those in response to that worship that God then does things on earth. It, it is in response to, to the worship in the heavenly places that God says, okay, I was just waiting for you to ask. And God changes things on earth. When we join with that festal gathering in the heavenly places, we are saying, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God goes, okay, I will. I'm glad you asked. So, in a very real sense, worship is warfare. Worship is warfare. Worship, the worship of the saints, is the kindling by which our God, who is a consuming fire, it says here in Hebrews 12, lights the fire of his kingdom upon the earth. When we join with that festal gathering, we are saying, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, and let let heaven be on earth, please. Come. And God says, okay. And as he does, we, we anticipate, as we worship, we anticipate and we look for just what that conquest will be. What's the next step of his conquest of the earth? To put it another way, what's the next step of his fulfilling his own great commission? Okay, so then let us reason together. Let us, let us put our thinking caps on and ask ourselves, what does this mean? What does this mean for us? Um, 
We need to unite together in relationships so that we may offer acceptable worship together. And this is so that our worship may be acceptable in the sight of God, so that our prayers may rend the heavens and that the kingdom would come down in new and fresh ways. We worship for the sake of God's good conquest of the world. After all, the greatest thing that's ever happened to us is that God would conquer our hearts. The greatest thing that would ever happen to us is that we have been conquered by the Lamb. So then, some practical considerations, and the the practical considerations today are going to look like repentance. Next week, the focus will be more on what we should do. But as we sang earlier, in the heart of worship, the first thing we must do is to confess and to repent of those things that we've made it into that ought not be. So, number one, number one, beginning at the, at the beginning here, and my, my first point is that this, you and your preferences, me and my preferences, are not the final arbiter of whether our worship is acceptable. That position is already filled. King Jesus is the final arbiter. So we worship him, by him, through him, for him. This is the Lord's day. We need to repent of taking his job for him, doing his job for him. He is the goal. He is the measuring stick. King Jesus. That's number one. Number two, in the same way, your entertainment and even your emotional pleasure in worship is not the primary goal of worship. Our goal is to worship him in ways that he says are acceptable, full of grateful celebration, balanced with reverence and awe, with an anticipation of the cosmic conquest that he is after. So we must, we must repent of coming here with, you know, with that same spirit with which we sit in front of a TV, or the same spirit with which we, I don't know, belly up to the table at a restaurant which is fine. It's fine to sit in front of the TV. It's fine to go to a restaurant. It's just not the spirit by which we should come here as consumers. This is, the church is not a spiritual big box store. The church is not a Christian version of Best Buy. We are here to give something to the Lord. We're here to give him worship and worship that is acceptable Worship that is filled in spirit and filled with truth. So, number three, we must not pit excellence in music against relational unity or vice versa. We must not pit excellence in music against relational unity, which the American church does all the time. We so value putting on a great show, an excellent an excellent presentation, without caring for your relational unity. And thus, to me... It is no wonder that God brought COVID and closed so many churches. We coldly neglect each other throughout the week, and then we expect God to supposedly receive our united sound on Sunday. I'm going to quote an old friend of mine. He used to say, when he got really riled up, he would say, it makes me want to puke. (laughs) I think that's how God feels about our worships, our excellent worship sometimes. When we treat each other like fecal matter the rest of the week, when we raise our outstretched hands on Sunday, all God sees and smells is fecal matter. He doesn't need our dancing barracks. We must repent of pursuing excellence on the Lord's day at the neglect of relational unity. They go hand in hand 
Which one should we desire? Both. One without the other. And yet, at the same time, again, one without the other, we want to give God our best. The worship of the Lord on the Lord's day is the central moment of our existence. Everything spins out of this moment. The change we want out there and in here spins out of this moment. You, me, and this culture both, we worshiped our way into our problems by following false gods. And so the only way out is by worshiping our way out. You and me and them ones out there. We're all in this together. The change you want out there and in here begins and, and is required. It, it starts and its power is worship. So, so much of our spiritual impotence is because we treat the Lord's day so lightly. And when the church treats the Lord's day so lightly, it is no wonder, it is no wonder that, that the culture is so disconnected from God because God's own people treat His worship so lightly. So I, I want to make one practical suggestion here. We t- spoke about this last night at the, at the, the progressive dinner, but I want to um, express it to everybody here. Would you consider with me, um, and this is an, an ongoing process in my own family, so w- will you consider with me starting the Lord's Day on Saturday night? Starting the Lord's Day on Saturday night in such a way that you're, you're set up really well for Sunday. That, so that you never show up to church and sit down and go, oh yeah, God. <laughs> um. So then a question, what, what would that look like? What, what, could you, what could you do on Saturday night that would get you both in the spirit of grateful celebration, but also reverence and awe of God, but also in, in relational unity with other people? So I'll give you a hint, it's not found on Netflix. <laughs> um, so here's my suggestion, is to make a habit of having a fun feast with friends on Saturday night. A fun feast with friends. Um, Yeah, you may want to clean up your house or don't. Who cares? (laughs) Who cares? Do you have a dining room table? (laughs) Do you have food in your house? Okay, you're you're good. You're golden. Um, Have a fun feast with friends. Sing a hymn around the table and then carry that, have a good time celebrating with each other in the Lord. Sing a hymn and, th- and then carry that spirit with you into Sunday. And then, you know, th- then you'll have a totally different perspective on this time. Instead of, you know, r- racing out to beat the Methodist to the Golden Corral after church, you know, you can, you, you can sit and just, and just be in the moment with each other. Um, and and it, I think it's a great way to introduce your friends that don't know Christ to the sweet fellowship of Christ um, without having to invite them to church, people who might be uncomfortable with church. Perhaps this could be your small group in the fall, a simple Sabbath feast with friends, joyfully ringing in the Lord's day so that you all together go into the Sabbath with a jolly spirit of gratitude, reverence, awe, and unity into the Lord's house. And then no matter what the sound system is doing, God will hear that and go, Oh, I love that. Oh, I love it.
So think about it, will you? Think about it, seriously. Um, this could be a practical way that we repent of taking the Lord's Day so lightly. Um, and and I, I want to say this, though. I'm speaking generally. I'm not speaking of any one particular person in our church. I'm not even sure if I'm speaking of our church. Um, perhaps I'm selling past the clothes with our church because I know so many people do take the Lord's Day. So um, uh, they, they treat it so centrally in their lives. But there, I wouldn't be saying this if I didn't think we needed to hear it. Lastly, number five, we must... We must repent of, of, a, of a, a kind of worship that, how can I put this, that luxuriates in our failures and luxuriates in our weaknesses and uh, luxuriates in our problems to a worship that has an optimistic, confident faith that God is still on the move that God is still working, that, that when, we, when we join that heavenly chorus here, when we align ourselves with that heavenly chorus that's already happening, that God is still in the business of going, okay, yes, yes, I hear that. I will move. I will change. This is, this is how you get out of the darkness that, that the news would have you in, this, this depressive cloud that... Whether, whether it's liberal or conservative news, it all wants you to be there, hopeless, hopeless. But when you're there, you're hooked. You're a slave to that, but it's not actually true. God is still there. God is still moving. Yes, on, on the one hand, I, I said not, not luxuriating in our weaknesses and our problems. Yes, come as you are. God meets us as we are in worship, but we should come with a confident optimism that God never leaves us as we are, that whatever is handed over to God, God raises from the dead, God transforms and renews, and then he hands it back to the world. God will do that with us, and God is doing it with the whole world. So God's enemies, God's enemies in this world Speaking of the news, God's enemies, they know, they feel deep down their inherent instability, just like their father, just like their father does. He, he knows he's on borrowed time. He knows he's on a leash. And that's why they pursue more and more power, why it never ends, because they know if they stop, all the hot air will leak out of the balloon, all the hot air of being inflated with self and ego, self-power, self self-sustenance, and they will fall. That's why they're so threatened and attacked when anyone resists their lust for power. And so the, the Lord's day is when we confidently gather and we confident proclaim, confidently proclaim to the heavens and the earth that Babylon's going to fall. <laughs> and we proclaim it to ourselves. We proclaim it to ourselves in confident hope that that shaking that we feel, that that's for you, not for us. I mean, it is for us because there's things in us that God does not want to remain that need to go back into the grave. But there's still time to repent. There's still time for y'all out there to join us in this kingdom that will never fail, that will never be shaken. So we, we too must repent from 
we, we, bring, we bring all of our failures, we bring our weaknesses, we bring our sins, as we will today in communion, but we do not stay there. We do not luxuriate in them. We, we bring them in hope that God will raise us from the dead, that God will, will shake them away and make us new. And God will not only do that in us, he will do that in the whole world. That he is still doing that in the whole world. We need to repent from luxuriating in our weaknesses to coming to him and saying, whatever you want of me, whatever you want, here I am. I lay myself before you. I am yours. I am yours, and I, I'm a mixed bag, but, but I hand myself over to you. I ask you, will you recommission me? Here I am. Send me. I, I know not where. I know not what. But I, but I lay myself in, at your feet with confidence and hope, hope that you are the God who has risen from the dead, who has ascended and who reigns right now and can do with me in whatever time I have left, whatever you want. Will you? That's worship. That's worship. And I pray, I pray, oh God, I, I hand you over and I pray, will you cause your kingdom to come? Will you cause your will to be done in here and with them ones out there? Will you cause your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? And then we, we pray that and we sing that confident that God never commands us to pray something that he will not say yes to. We come and we say, your will, your, your will, it is not bondage, oh Lord. Your will is life. Come. <laughs> come. Get much glory, because when you get all the glory, we, we, will get all, we will be so filled with joy, we won't know what to do with ourselves as you reveal your glory. Your glory is our joy, for you are our life. So we must, we must labor for unity that we would truly worship God in the unity that he desires, in the way that he desires. But then we should, as we come to worship, we should worship with a confident expectation that God is on the move, that God is still waging war against his enemies, and that he will win. He will win. We join with that worship in the heavenly places. It is, it is cosmically significant what we are doing here every Sunday. It takes faith to see it, so God, give us faith. God, give us faith. Let me, let me pray for that now. Father, please grant us this faith. Grant us this sight to see what you are doing in the heavenly places. Grant us sight to see that we are already seated with you in the heavenly places. Give us sight to see that, faith to see that when we gather together and worship here in this room, in this Industrial light industrial complex on the edge of Elk Grove here in California, that something cosmically significant is happening, that we are joining, joining with all of the spirits arrayed in festal glory because of your righteousness. We're joining with them in their praise of you. It's amazing. Give us the eyes of faith to see these things. Give us the eyes of faith that would therefore repent of the ways we've gone off, the way we, we all go off from true north. Grant us repentance. And then grant us 
um, something closer to the true heart of worship that you would have for us. Grant us to come here and, and, and worship you with grateful, celebrating hearts that are also filled with reverence and awe in anticipation and an optimism of what you will do in response. To you be the glory. May your glory cover this earth as the waters cover the ocean, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, now we move to communion. But, Christian, above everything else, <laughs> hear the benediction. Your God smiles upon you. Your God smiles upon you. And he's already given you his only begotten son. How will he also not, how will he also not with him graciously give you all things? All things. That's the God that you are under. That's the God you, who worship you worship. And that's the God who will be with you as you leave. So go now in a grateful celebration of him with reverence and awe of such love, such love lavished on you. Amen. Go in that peace.